values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. So bad and pretty, moving with a style and ease, and I feel love from across the room. Yes, it's love in the third degree. Hey, thanks for being here. Every segment, it's a walk down memory lane. Van Halen, uh, thanks for being here. Happy Thursday. Um, rolling into this economy conversation again. We, we've talked about it earlier this morning. We're going to talk it again later in the show. I think this is one of the bigger issues that everyone is facing is the uh, what is going to happen next. Wall Street responds many times to um, fe- not fear, but the unknown. Um, what is going to happen next? And watching Wall Street for me is something important because it is the nonpartisan gauge of what's happening many times. The reason why I say that is because they make money on Wall Street during Democrat um, administrations, during Republican administrations, during recessions, uh, bear markets and bull markets. They, they are the experts, but they will tell you they, they are taking the pulse of the American economy every minute of every day. And um, when I when you look at what's happening in the world, many in the world, not just the U.S., there are a lot of people that are fearful. Inflation is gripping the world. We are seeing a war that continues between Russia and Ukraine. It is affecting the food market because the amount of wheat that comes out of that part of the world, it's affecting oil prices. But along with that are also the OPEC and plus nations, including Russia, that are making decisions about the price of fossil fuels that is affecting the rest of the world's prices. On top of that, here in Arizona. With refining issues and supply issues as far as transportation goes, we've seen our gas prices go through the roof. So I'm not uh, I'm not telling you anything you aren't already feeling. The real estate market is very tight for people. Rent remains very, very high. But in the end, the policies that matter is what people are looking at. Are we – this debt ceiling that has passed, the debt ceiling um, – Conversation at least now it leaves the House. The Senate has to vote on it. Is there any chance that the House, the Senate is going to pass this the way it is? Who knows? We've the president is saying we've got to extend the debt ceiling. The issue for Americans should be: What are we going to do about the money we spend? And I ranted about this earlier. Um, Understanding that we had to spend as much money as we spent during COVID-19 to keep our economy afloat, whether you agree with the shutdowns, whether you believe they were necessary at the time, whether you look in hindsight and say we didn't do this the right way or we didn't do that the right way, it's done. And it was done at a time when people believed it needed to be done to keep the economy afloat. Well, part of the thing is there's a lot of that COVID money that's still out there that people become dependent on. That's the issue for me also with government programs. They call them temporary. It's going to be temporary relief for American families. There's going to be more money available for health care because people are getting sick because of COVID. And now when that money begins to dry up, we hear from people, well, they've become accustomed to it. Now you're going to cut their food subsidies. You're going to cut medical subsidies for people. This is what I think is also a big problem, especially with federal programs, that they're wasteful, but then people become dependent and what it be what it was supposed to be temporary aid becomes an entitlement. And that, to me, is a very scary thing that we lean on. And we keep people down with them. You can preach about them, but that's what happens. Now we've watched this possibility of recession because the GDP has slowed to 1.1%. One of the big questions about that, though, is, is this a reality in this all of a sudden the economy was going at a much faster pace? And now with this past quarter, we're seeing a dramatic slowdown. Is this truly the um, – 
the interest rate increases slowing down the economy intentionally is it beginning to work or is it possible that this all data also includes those bank failures is that a part of the issue here and here's my fear with this um my fear is that businesses are going to lose their ability to borrow money or lose their lines of credit. We know that that's happening. That if businesses, if the banks get uh, concerned about being able to recoup that money, if they start taking away people's lines of credit. So, you know, you may have credit cards. I've got some credit cards. If all of a sudden you were, you got a notification from your credit card company, we're closing your account or we're dramatically reducing the amount of money you have access to. For many people, myself included, it wouldn't be a big deal in the sense that I don't run up that much credit card debt anyway. But for companies that have revolving lines of credit, a lot of times they are new uh, companies that rely on um, – you, know, you can get a HELOC, which is a home equity line of credit. But it's similar to that. You can have one for your business where a bank says, you've got an open line of credit. Here it is, and we're going to bill you based on this. Here's your interest rate. This is what you know you're going to have to pay back. And many companies use them as the float. You send out bills. Um, usually it's net 30, so you're really net 60 because if you're billing a customer at the end of a month, Month, you've already done that month's work. So you've already been paying for 30 days for material and for labor. If they truly are net 30 and you get paid 30 days later, you're getting your money 60 days after that work began. Does that make sense? I mean, that's again, I'm not reinventing the wheel, but that's what happens. We know that in reality, most companies are net 60, net 90. Some of them will tell you we are net 120. So if you want to work with us, you just need to know if you're going to bill us, you're going to get paid 120 days later usually. Well, there's a lot of people that A, need the work, but B, can't don't have the money for the float. So they use that line of credit to pay for everything, and then when they get the big check, they put that check against the line of credit until they've got enough money in the bank to float, you know, to have the float in their own account. Again, everybody does it. If you're a business owner, you're bored with this because I'm telling you something you're very familiar with. But for anybody that's not familiar with it, I want you to imagine now a company that's got 15, 18, 20 employees. We're not talking about a huge company, but if you're a single owner, I had 18 people working for me at one time. It's daunting to have that kind of, you know, every week I got to have that money in there for payroll every week. Um, all of a sudden to find out, guess what? We are drying up. Your or dramatically reducing your access to money. Instantly, you are your hands are tied. You're laying people off even if you have work. And then it gets to a point where we don't have enough people. We don't have enough money to pay enough people to do the work we need to cover our expenses. We are absolutely financially underwater, and no one is going to help us. It is a feeling that I, can, I can't even describe and I hope none of you ever have to feel. But that's the concern that's hitting the small business world as we speak. You've got banks failing, so they're concerned there are going to be new rules and safeguards so they don't fail again, which means it's going to be harder to borrow. They're going to be less likely to, uh, to, to lend money to some companies if they get, they get some instability in the economy. And that's the old joke, but there's some truth to it that you can't borrow money when you really need it because, you know, once your credit is good, when your credit card balances are very, very low, you get notifications all the time about opening a credit card or you're pre-qualified for this amount of money or that amount of money. 
But for the businesses that count on that for the lifeblood of their company, it's a scary thing. And it can when you realize that somebody could basically shut your business down by shutting off your credit, it's scary. And it's one of the things in the economy that's concerning to people when we talk about recession. You're going to see people losing their jobs. There's no doubt about that because companies are not going to have the capital they need to keep all the employees they have. And so uh, that's a big, to me, is a big deal. And moving forward, how is America going to respond? Um, Will this be a recession? And if so, how deep will that recession go? So we're going to keep our eyes on it. There's no doubt about it. In a moment, we're going to go back to the election and electability. Uh, President Biden is getting great support from, from mega donors, as we predicted. I believe the Democratic Party will rally around him. There's no doubt they will. Who will be the Republican challenger? Will they be electable? Electability is a big part of this. We'll talk about all of it coming up here in a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Is President Biden at a disadvantage for re-election because of the condition of the economy? Will the Americans hold him accountable and blame him for high gas prices, record high gas prices at one time? Will they blame him for inflation? Will they blame him for not responding to inflation soon enough and possibility of by the end of this year being in a recession? Meaning going into an election year, we would be in a recession, big or small. And I'm asking a question. It's not rhetorical. Will the the American people look at the track record of this president first and whether or not he should be re reelected or will it be just as much or more about the other option that's afforded them? It's a question that everybody needs to ask. Um, will it be and, and this is what and I'm not I'm not making a prediction, but there are many people that believe And these are supposed experts that have been wrong many times like I have. But they're saying that Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump in a head to head matchup if they again is what they are saying. I don't know that to be true. But the reason why I'm asking the question is, is it about electability of the other side? Is Joe Biden a weak candidate? I believe he is weaker in a reelection campaign than when he was when he got elected. I think his record hurts him more than it helps him. It helps him with Democrats. I, I, I get that. And I understand the Democrats are largely pleased with the progress. But going by the poll numbers, Republicans never liked him and are never going to. When you look at independent voters, it is a very large number of independents that are displeased with what this administration is doing. Now, for the Democrats, they're going to say it's an unfair assessment, and you may be right, but perception is reality, and the large, large number of independent voters are not pleased with the record of Joe Biden as president from the border to inflation when that includes gas prices, all of those things, whether or not you blame you, I'm not talking about you, independent voters are not pleased. So they are walking in saying, yes, his record is more of a deterrent than it is an asset for the president for reelection. But if Donald Trump runs and he runs the way he did in 2020, will he be a candidate that they say I can't vote for? This is what America is asking. Now, we know that Ron DeSantis is probably jumping in. He's forming an exploratory committee. We know Nikki Haley is already in. Asa Hutchinson is in. 
former governor of Arkansas, who I think is going to be a more formidable candidate than anybody gives him credit for. Um, I've spent some time with the governor and a very, very smart man with a resume that I think a lot of people on the Republican side of the aisle are going to like. Um, That doesn't mean he's going to be. I'm just saying I think there's a lot of formidable opponents out there. But right now, the prediction is it's going to be Donald Trump. I've talked about my relationship so often with John McCain, and it was a weird relationship because um, before I was ever in radio, I developed a rapport with the senator. Before I was in radio full time, um, I did some events for his campaign when he ran for president against Barack Obama. I was invited to be the master of ceremonies at the rally on Monday night before election night at the town square up at the courthouse in Prescott. They did the same thing that Barry Goldwater did. So I have a relationship that went back a long time with the late senator. And I'll never run from that. I know that there are people in my party that don't like him for whatever reason of the political disagreements I had with Senator McCain. But he was gracious to me. We had a great friendship and a great rapport. Um, I love John McCain. And I'm not going to run from that. And I'm not going to be told by people in my party that despise him that I have to despise him too or you don't like me. That's your choice. I'm not going to run from the people I'm friends with. I don't care who they are. Um, But he was very good to me. But one of the things you have to do, and I just was talking about Joe Biden to Democrats and saying, listen, I know how you feel, but you also have to be aware of how others feel. If you're going to look at an election, if you are a Donald Trump supporter, and I voted for Donald Trump twice, and I supported Donald Trump, and I felt like a kid caught in a horrible divorce between him and John McCain, because McCain didn't like him either. I mean, I'm not telling any secrets out of school here. Senator McCain did not like Donald Trump either as a person. So I felt like a kid caught in a terrible divorce. I just wanted the two people to like each other and stop saying bad things about each other. But John McCain won elections in Arizona by double digits every time he ran. And I think independent voters in Arizona love John McCain, too. And if you are going to and the president, the former president wrote a book and in the book, he says more disparaging things about John McCain, not saying he shouldn't have done that. But if he runs that way, if he talks that way at campaign events in Arizona, if they if they tell McCain Republicans to get the hell out like they did in the last election cycle, I do believe there will be people that will not vote. It was a very small margin that Donald Trump lost and a very small margin by which Kerry Lake lost. And disparaging John McCain was probably not the only thing that was a key factor in that, but you can't say that it wasn't a factor. And that's, this is what I'm saying about this is this is an example, and there's going to be a lot of examples, of what you have to look at to win. Um, uh, President Trump is going to have the same passionate, large following he always had. There's no doubt about that. Republicans, in large part, are going to support Donald Trump. And the Democrats are going to support Joe Biden. Which of those two candidates, if it ends up being a rematch, shows themselves to be most electable to independent voters? Realizing your base is following you into the fire. Which of you is better at reaching out to the independent voters and explaining to them why you're the best choice? And I'm anxious to see how that plays out. And it's going to play out. It's going to be interesting. Uh, well, at least it's interesting to me because I love this stuff. Like Just like the NFL draft, I love American politics the same way as an observer. In a moment... Um,
We're going to go back to the tamale bill one more time because 12 Democrats who voted in favor of the bill voted against the veto override. Only two of them gave any explanation at all. I'm going to let you hear that explanation next. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, why did Democrats change their votes on the tamale bill? I got a better question to start with. Why are so many people still obsessed with this story? I, I am. I'm one of them. But why is it that people are compelled by this story? Number one, I think it's because we all can relate to it. I think that when you see this, we've all we've all seen people doing this. They are selling um, food that they've made or food or whatever they're selling um, door to door or in neighborhoods. And they're sitting in the corner of the back of their vehicle. And I think most people respect it. Most people say you're being industrious and you're trying to make a living. You're trying to make a few extra dollars. You're hustling. And most people respect it. And. When I look at this story, I, I'm my neighborhood where I lived recently, and there were always people in the neighborhood that were selling things. And once in a while, we'd stop and buy stuff, and and uh, I appreciated someone being industrious. The other part of it, as I think most of us look at this and say, nobody's being harmed, and why is the government telling two individuals what kind of a business transaction they're allowed to have? It's interesting. I, I mentioned this the other day when talking about this. My friend Hector uh, brought in breakfast for me and for Sharp the other day. Um, he's a business owner here in town, owns a demolition company. And he brought us breakfast. And in the bag, each of our bags, there was a dozen tortillas, half a dozen tamales, and a breakfast burrito that was out of this world delicious. And so he gave us breakfast. And um, had we bought them from him, had we called him and said, hey, Hector, can you make us some of that breakfast to your wife? Can you and we'll pay you? And we had paid him. That would have been a violation. This is the kind of nonsense that people look at and say, what do you talk? Why? You know, if I want to buy this food, buyer beware. I've got this is my business, not yours. The other thing is when you saw an outpouring from both sides of the aisle where you saw Republicans standing shoulder to shoulder with Democrats saying this is ridiculous that the governor would veto this bill. We talked to a Tucson Democrat who said, you know, I don't care what political party it is. You know, this is affecting my community. She's she is a Hispanic voter. She is a Hispanic legislator from Tucson. And she said this affects my community. This is a large part of my community that does things like this. And you're now demonizing and criminalizing what these people are doing to make some money. But when it came time to override, you need a two-thirds majority in order to override. Twelve of the Democrats that voted in favor of this bill, which was House Bill 2509, which would have uh, made this perfectly legal to do, um, when it came time to override the governor's veto, those 12 Democrats changed their vote. And of the 12, 
Eight of them did not respond at all for the media request for an explanation of why they changed their vote. They just completely ignored the media requests. Two others responded. One of them said, I'm not going to talk about it. The other one referred them to Democratic leadership and asked leadership why we changed our minds. And then the two that did respond um, said that it was because Republicans politicized the issue. Now, I will tell you why I still believe this is a big deal. Um, This is a big deal because they voted in favor of this. And I'm not overstating this issue. I think it's an important thing. You believed that it was the right thing to do to allow people to cook homemade food and sell it to make some extra money. You thought it was absolutely okay to do. You voted in favor of it, just like a bunch of your Republican colleagues did. But when it came time to stand up and pass this for your constituents, and many of them will say, and this is the part that bothers me about politics on both sides of the aisle, is that when it comes time to explain to your constituents when you say I'm going to go to the legislature and I am going to stand up for my constituents and I am going to make sure that they get I'm going to let I'm going to speak for them well you did which which time were you not speaking for your constituents when you voted in favor of it or when you voted against it because when you voted against it what you did was you ran political cover for the governor now this is not the end of the world this is not going to be a career ender for a politician but what you did was you decided as a caucus because two of the people referred people back to democratic leadership ask them why we changed our vote well how would leadership know why you changed your vote unless you guys discussed it What you did was instead of standing up for your constituents and the freedom to do this when you could put your money where your mouth is, you could stand up and say to the governor, hey, and you're a Democrat. You could stand up and say, I love this governor. I think she's doing a great job, but I think she made a mistake on this one. So I voted in favor of the veto override. And it would have been done. And I said this, that what the governor could have done after that was come out and say, I respect the view and the will of the legislature. I may have gotten this one wrong. I was looking at safety issues, but I understand why they did what they did and move on. But instead, you ran political cover. For a fellow politician, so there wasn't a blemish on her record this early in her tenure, so that she didn't have a veto override, and what you did is blame it on the Republicans for politicizing it. You politicized it. You chose your party over your constituents, many of them the same party that elected you. And there are people that are there are registered Democrats. There are people out here right now that do this for a living. They do this to make extra money. This is the hustle that they use to keep their heads financially above water. You helped criminalize them so that you could not blemish the governor's record when it came to the veto. And and I just hope that voters take that into consideration. Every time you hear somebody say, I serve the people of my district, I'm here to do the will of the people of my district, I'm here to represent the people of my district, you should be asking these 12 how they did that. And it's a fair question. I'm not saying be adversarial and nasty. I don't think I'm being nasty at all. I'm asking an honest question. If you're going to stand up for your principles and you are so principled in your belief that you voted in favor of this bill, when it came time to vote in favor of it again to override the governor's veto, you changed course. Twelve of you. Only two of you had any courage at all in giving an explanation. Ten of you refused. And I just think the voters need an answer.
And I hope that by the time we get to the next election cycle, that voters ask the question. You're the ones that say you're not political. You're the ones that say you're going to do the will of your constituents. And here was your chance. Here was your chance. You reversed course. You should explain why. In a moment, we are going to talk about the border. Is the administration incentivizing child trafficking? A whistleblower says there might be a chance of that happening. We'll talk about it coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, we are sprinting toward the expiration of Title 42, and there are major concerns about what will happen at the border. Are we going to see mass crossings? Are we prepared for the number of people that will be crossing and processing those people thoroughly? What is it going to do to the attention that needs to be paid to drug and human traffickers? I shouldn't say that. There's a difference. Human trafficking is bringing people across the border illegally, and that's one of the things that is horrible about this. I'm talking about sex trafficking. And and that's the other part of this that I, I don't know that there is any worse thing you can do. In most cases, it is young women, not always, but most times it's young women, girls that are trafficked. And you're taking away their childhood. You're taking away their innocence. You are literally putting, putting them into slavery for sexual purposes. It is a depraved, horrible thing that no person should endure, and it happens. It happens at our southern border. Um, And people are concerned about it continuing. So here's a couple of headlines. Biden administration absolutely incentivizing child trafficking at the border. Now, I'm not talking about sex trafficking here, but children coming across the border. A prominent activist said it's incentivizing child trafficking with passive border border control policies. Here's another headline. Whistleblower reveals law enforcement is not vetting sponsors for child migrants. This is where I am talking about accountability for people in the media business, and here's why. The reason why this is important for us is when Donald Trump was president, we talked about separated families. They showed video and pictures of children in cages, and this was about the horrible treatment of separated families and children. Those families haven't been reunited. We have children that are in the system with sponsor families, and they don't know where those children are. They're not tracking them. They're not vetting the people that are taking these kids in and sponsors. It's an absurd thing that's happening, and what we are doing is we are creating an underclass um, – And it's just a horrible situation. And when we are concerned about the expiration of Title 42, people want to call it political. It isn't political. There is an Associated Press story that is up at KTAR.com. You can go and read it right now, and I hope you will. Here is the plight. Here's the headline. Immigrants waiting 10 years in the U.S. just to get a court date. The backlog stems from a change made two months after the, uh, Joe Biden took office when Border Patrol agents began now defunct practice of quickly releasing immigrants on parole. They were given instructions to report to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office at their final destination to be processed for court. Um, usually that was done by the Border Patrol. It prevented the kind of massive overcrowding of the holding cells. But what's happening is there is a 10-year waiting list in some cases for the court date. 10 years. So I want you to think, and and this is an easy uh, observation to make, um, that if they're waiting 10 years 
And we know, and even the even the proponents of this plan and what's happening admit that the majority. Now we argue and disagree with what that number in the majority looks like. Some say it's sixty percent. Some say it's closer to eighty percent or more of the asylum claims by people are deemed to be false claims in the end by a judge or or a magistrate. And so if you're waiting 10 years to be judged on the validity of your claim, two things can happen. Neither of them are good for either group. The first group are the false asylum seekers that are clogging up this system. And they're going to wait 10 years. And if they show up at a court date, if they show up, they are going to be deemed to have a false asylum claim. But we know that in 10 years, they get jobs, they start businesses, they get married, they start families, or they have children. And then how are we going to separate them? They've been here for 10 years. Now they've got kids of their own that are American-born, but their asylum claim was illegitimate. The second group of people affected by this are the legitimate asylum seekers. Imagine someone that is entitled to asylum because we are the shining city on the hill. That when people are in need of asylum from horrible circumstances, we are a nation of refuge. And we should be proud of that. I'll be honest with you. I think we should be that. I like the fact that we are that. I think the fact that the world still wants the American dream shows that the American dream is still alive, even if we see more and more Americans that don't believe it. The world still does. But what about those legitimate asylum seekers? What about them? Can you imagine someone that has to wait 10 years to get the status that our constitution, our I shouldn't say constitution, but our laws say they're entitled to? What about them? For everybody out there that wanted to see a more uh, compassionate immigration system, the question is compassionate to who? The cartels effectively control the border when it comes to who comes across and what comes across. Their drugs are still getting in in high numbers. The human trafficking aspect we've talked about, the sex trafficking aspect we're talking about. Um, and we know that these people are being shuttled across the border, at least to the border, by these cartels that are making millions and millions and millions of dollars in the process. Somebody explained to me, and I understand your partisan political connections because I have them myself, but you can in no way can you look at yourself in the mirror and give an explanation that what is happening right now is more humane than it was four years ago. You can't because it isn't. It's a different kind of whatever it is, but it certainly isn't more humane. We still have separated families. We still have child trafficking. We still have human trafficking. We still have sex trafficking. We've got more drug trafficking. Fentanyl is killing more uh, young people than anything else in this country. And all of it is happening right now. You cannot say that this is working. And we haven't even gotten to May 11th yet because that's when Title 42 expires. What happens in this country after that date? And it's what everybody's asking. Just after 11 o'clock... We're going to talk about teachers unions, COVID, and who made the decision to close schools. It's all coming up.